Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I am loving my job today because I get to spend a little time with Heidi Rehm. Heidi Rehm, a major figure in the world of genetics and genomics. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite. So I am reduced to that cliche because you, Heidi, hold so many damn jobs. I couldn't decide what to feature. Uh, professor at Harvard Medical School, which I believe is a school up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, co-leader of the Broad Center for Mendelian Genetics and medical director of the Clinical Research Sequencing Platform at the Broad Institute. I don't know what that is. I'm going to be honest with you. Maybe you'll explain it to me. Um, and one of the significant figures who brought us, ClinGen, Matchmaker, the eMERGE Consortium, BabySeq. You get the idea. So I think... The thread tying all this together is that Heidi is at the forefront of the push to figure out how information on the variation in human genome can be collected, organized, analyzed, and used in medicine effectively, efficiently, ethically, all the E-words. So welcome to the show, Heidi. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Just to start out an introduction to you, how did you end up doing what you do? What brought you to genetics? Well, I've, you know, I've loved genetics ever since I was a kid. I remember my first genetics experiment in high school uh, and just being, you know, interested. I mean, I was always interested in science and math and that sort of field, but there was something about genetics and being someone with a type A personality the structure and order of DNA sequence, the ATGC, the ability to predict what a gene was and, and how it made a, you know, a protein, it was all very logically you know, set up and I was attracted to this sort of code and, and how it made you know, a human and I could, I could understand it and appreciate it and wanted to know more about it. And, and I think that's where my interest in genetics started. Um, over time, I became, you know, more focused uh, on the human disease aspects of it because it was something where I felt like I could contribute to society in understanding the causes of human disease uh, that were based in genetics and figure out those causes and be able to diagnose patients and improve their lives. And that's where I really started focusing more specifically in uh, human disease genetics. Mm-hmm. So, you, And you were one of the geneticists, the scientists in genetics, whose career spanned the introduction and conclusion of the Human Genome Project. How, how much yes. did that change your life? It, it had a huge change on my life. You know, and I actually, I remember um, when the completion of the Human Genome Project was announced, um, it was around the time I was at a family wedding. And I remember several people coming up to me and saying, gee, now that the human genome is sequenced, are you out of a job? <laughs> and I, I just chuckled to myself. Now that we figured and, everything out. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, we may have sequenced the first human being, but there's still so much to understand. And I think I didn't even appreciate just the degree of the complexity, even at that stage. Um, so, like one, yes, one I've down, you know, expanded. One down five billion <laughs> to right. go. What is it? I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know the exact number of people on earth. 
Um, yes, yeah. billions. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so funny. That's really funny. Um, so, I know you're not at the end of anything, but looking back so far, what's been the most satisfying thing? I, I think the transition, you know, when I started my career in genetics, we were sequencing DNA by hand. I remember the radioactive long gels we would run to get base pair by base pair and read them off one base at a time, A, T, G, C, as I looked at, you know, a radiographic image. Um, and and so we were, you know, just studying piece by piece, we could only study one gene at a time. And I think that transition that's happened over the course of the 25 years or more that I've been involved in human genetics, where we can now, in the same manner of time, generate sequence on an entire human, uh, and there are three, you know, billion bases, I think that transition has, has made such an impact because now when a patient comes to the clinic with, you know, a condition that has been undiagnosed, we don't have to try to guess which gene might be at play. We can sequence their entire genome and look in an unbiased way at what's going on. And that, to me, has revolutionized the ability to integrate genetics into the practice of medicine. It's, um, it's an amazing thing about being in this field, the way uh, when you say, when you would talk about five or six years ago, it was like the Middle Ages. It's such a shortened time frame. I, I, it's, that's the world. It would be like, the way the world before smartphones feels so long ago, but everything yeah. is a smartphone, right? Like everything you work at right. is a smartphone. Um, so ClinGen, who first thought of getting the government to fund a database? Did that seem realistic? What, what, what was you, I don't really know where you came in on that. I know you've been very involved with it. Yeah, so there were a few things that were happening in parallel um, that led to both ClinGen and ClinVar, which are related but also distinct. Um, so the ClinVar database, which is a, a, a database managed by NCBI at NIH, um, and they were being approached by several clinical laboratories, my own included, for the need to really be able to share the interpretations of variants that we're, we were each generating in our own labs. And um, so we, you know, several of us approached NCBI and having tried a few different options before this um, to see if they would set up a database where we could all submit our own variant interpretations. Uh, so that was, you know, that those discussions were happening. Meanwhile, uh, NHGRI, the, the National Human Genome Research Institute, also at NIH, was convening uh, experts in the field to discuss, you know, bringing together expert opinions on genetic information and how they could, you know, track and store this information and perhaps also create a database. Um, so I was involved in both of those activities. You know, other people were also involved in both. Um, and you know, we started having these discussions. I, um, another thing that had happened is a colleague of mine, Krista Martin, who's a cytogeneticist, um, 
similar field, but mainly looking at very large chromosomal abnormalities that would happen in uh, in newborns and others. They had gathered the community in the cytogenetics field to share information around the design of what are now called chromosome microarrays and which probes should be on those arrays being manufactured by companies. So they were starting to aggregate the clinical genetic testing community in cytogenetics um, and had a grant to support some of the, that work. And I teamed up with them because I was planning to submit a grant on the sequence variant interpretation side. So we partnered to really extend some of the community work happening in cytogenetics to the sequence variant world, uh, applied for a grant. Meanwhile, this separate effort at NHGRI was going on, and they put out a call for grant applications around expert um, opinions in genetics and building information. Um, and so some other of my colleagues applied for those grants, and two were chosen. And before these grants were all funded, three of these main grants, we were brought together. Our grant that sort of came through a different side of this, the other two grants through this NHGRI mechanism, and we were all brought together and asked to come up with a coordinated plan um, to sort of build what is now called ClinGen or the Clinical Genome Resource. Mm -hmm. And through that planning effort, we also uh, agreed to partner with NCBI, who, who is building this ClinVar database. And, uh, and we all decided to work together. And we now have a deep and longstanding partnership between ClinGen and ClinVar to really support both the sharing of genetic variant interpretation information and developing expert panels in different disease areas that can inform the labs that are interpreting variants. Yeah, it's extraordinary how many sense? people are actually involved in this effort when you look at all of those committees. It's, it's an, yes, it's we have enormous. over 11... Over 1,100 members of our working groups and expert panels working from around the world to share their knowledge. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, um, there's a story. I'm So it's funny. I'm pretty face blind and generally oblivious as a rule. So while I might want to be a big name dropper, I'm really handicapped by never recognizing anyone. So um, actually, my, my personal best celebrity story is when I met Walter Cronkite and mistook him for the elevator operator. So that gives you an idea <laughs> of how bad I am. So, so I try and keep away from name dropping, but, but here, here's my name dropping story. Wally Gilbert I met at a party in Wellfleet where we both spent time in the summer, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. It, again, like it feels like a million years ago, right? So long. And uh, he was involved with Myriad. So Walter, Gil Walter Gilbert, one of the people is the sort of legends of the early development of sequencing, but also he had a big stake in Myriad. And we were talking about the lawsuit that was had was sort of just coming up. Or No, we weren't even talking about the lawsuit yet. We were talking about the end of the patent, which was looming on the BRCA genes. And the BRCA testing at that point was this giant part of all of Myriad's income, like 90%. And I remember he looked at me and he said, people don't understand it doesn't matter if we have the patent. We have the data. And um, it was this incredible thing, like unspoken thing that the data was in private hands and they didn't need the patent as long as the data was in private hand. So Myriad, the lawsuit upended private ownership of uh, genetics of genes, let's say, or uh, 
2013, but 2013 was also the time of the funding of ClinGen, which took the data out of private hands. And I, I think it's a kind of amazing, especially when you consider the larger context of the atmosphere of, the, of academic science in general and where it's gone since 1980, more and more competitive, how much sharing has actually been achieved. I don't know if that's recognized enough, the incredible value in things like um, Nomad, X, X, you know, XAC, whatever it was originally, and ClinGen. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that we were able, not me, I'm putting myself in it, which is really nice of me, but you guys were able to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I must say that I I periodically step back and, and make the same comment to myself. You know, we really did this. And I remember before ClinVar, you know, being approached by a lot of companies that were trying to commercialize the knowledge-sharing world and create very complex systems of, well, if, if you share, you know, for every variant interpretation that you share and, you know, we'll give you credit for every time that someone used that and you get, you know, build up these credits and, and that you can use them to access information. And it was just this, like, incredibly complex web of how people were going to get paid for their knowledge that they'd share that, that would incentivize them. And, and, you know, early on I said, this is going to be a mess. You know, if, if people see other people getting paid for sharing, then they won't share unless they're paid. And it's just, it's going to just, you know, kill this in its infancy because of nothing else, the complexity. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to view, and I remember a colleague of mine saying, we should view this like safety in the airline industry. You know, that has to be pre-competitive. We all have to to share data around safety and make sure that that is a fundamental right of anybody stepping on an airplane and that we compete on the services on top of that with that being a fundamental right. So we really approach this as, you know, variant interpretation sharing is around quality assurance and ensuring that patients are getting the most accurate and informed interpretations that they can and that information has to be shared for that purpose. And then commercial labs can continue to compete on other things that are service-oriented, how quickly, the cost, you know, what is their customer service side? There's many ways they can compete in the industry that, are, you know, can support their profit margins, but we can't compete on quality assurance for patients. And that's that fundamental principle really informed our approach to getting laboratories to share data. It, it helped early on in my first grant that we actually paid for some of the, you know, computer software engineers that could help get data out of people's labs, which is a barrier. The sharing process is labor intensive um, and that continues to be a barrier. Yeah. But I, but I, I am excited about the fact that we got over that fundamental, you know, data sharing issue for most labs, not all labs. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Not all labs. It's like that. So it it could be a hashtag. Um, Yeah, it is. Quite a, and, you know, when you look backwards, there's always a tendency, I think, to think of seeing what happened as inevitable. It feels kind of inevitable, overridden. But if you look back at what a surprise it was when that lawsuit won in 2013, and that's not even seven years ago. I mean, yeah. it's unthinkable today that there could be patents on particular genes. How would we be practicing genomics? Like, how would this be possible? And yet... That's right. When the lawsuit happened, 
the result of it was a shock. Like, like yep. I remember somebody who was very active in the genome law part of it then saying pigs flew, you know, because they just. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, with the development of ClinVar and other resources, I think there were two, at least they were surprises to me. Maybe they weren't surprises to you. To me, they were maybe, maybe shocks. Uh, um, one is the sort of now trite thing to say that rare variants are both frequent and rare, right? So that there's a lot more rare variation in the genome than we'd expected, but also each particular variant tends to be, is it still seen only once? Each particular variant is, is uh, not seen yeah. that many times. That's right. I mean, if you take an individual laboratory doing genetic testing, and, and I ran a lab for 16 years, and the data that we had was two-thirds of patients we tested, we identified either the clearly cause of the variant or the candidate cause of the variant, um, and only saw that variant in that one patient and no one else. So they were, in essence, private to that individual. Um, so there is this, this enormous amount of rare, extremely rare, in fact, often private to a family, variation that actually contributes to genetic disease. And that wasn't, I think, what people expected to find, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think people expected to find, you know, a, 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 while not common in the sense that we think about common variation, still think, thinking that there were certain variants that would be the primary causes of specific conditions like, you know, cystic fibrosis was one of the first genetic conditions that was understood at the genetic level. And, and for that disease, there is a single variant, Delta 508, that, ca that caused the vast majority of that condition, a founder variant. And so I think, you know, because of that, those findings uh, for certain diseases, and then sickle cell anemia is largely caused, in fact, is only caused by a single known variant. So the, you know, these examples were, were steering us in, in a direction that today actually isn't really consistent with most genetic disorders, which are mostly due to variants that are not the same across individuals with the disease. Yeah, it's like the low-hanging fruit we thought was yeah. you know, indicative of the the fruit up top, but it turns out it was hanging low for unique reasons, yep. right? It doesn't turn out to be much like anything else. Um, That's right. The The other thing that uh, that shocks me, so I think the latest thing I've seen on this is still maybe five years old, so maybe it's changed, but the lack of concordance between labs, the extent of that in 2013, 2014, was still quite shocking to me, so that if you see a rare variant and it's not 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 the call of the ACTGs but the call of whether or not it's pathogenic um, mm -hmm. if it's rare if it's common if it's BRCA then chances are you'd get it called the same way from lots of different labs right but if it's a rare variant there's still a very decent chance if you send it somewhere else you'd get a different interpretation is that still true well um, I mean there is still discordance in interpretation but that has changed significantly over the span of the last five years. Uh, and it's a little bit difficult to track um, because we actually can track this in ClinVar as we look at concordance and discordance across laboratories. But the challenge is there's, there's a constant 
influx of new laboratories that are submitting and sharing data. And so the more laboratories sharing data, the more opportunity for discordance. Um, yet at the same time, if you were to dive into, you know, a set of labs that you compared um, early on when we before we started sharing data, uh, and then took that same set of labs and looked at their concordance today after they'd been engaged in data sharing over that five-year period, what you will see is a dramatic decrease in this discordance. And that, you know, stems from several different things. One, we've actually improved the professional guidelines that give more granularity to how we interpret variants and put out those standards and more, most labs follow those standards. Uh, and that has created some, you know, increased consistency. That said, those standards are still can be subjectively applied and, and it doesn't remove discordance. Um, and so we, we still see discordance because, you know, of just differently applying the rules. Um, yet, when labs have been sharing data, identifying discordance, figuring out why there's discordance and then adjusting things, um, that has improved the concordance over time through that experience. And then the third factor is sometimes the reason for the discordance is nothing to do, in fact, most of the time, it's not to do with the different approaches we might take or the different standards we might use, but in fact, the, the different uh, data and evidence that underlies the interpretation. And each laboratory generates their own data in the course of genetic testing, but that data has no place to be shared. It's patient-level data. Uh, there isn't consent to share patient-level data. And so the, the underlying evidence for why a lab interpreted a variant as such might just simply be related to different patients they had tested. And it's not until we identify the discordance, share our underlying evidence with each other, that then we can resolve that, that discordance. So those activities of data sharing and comparing have been ongoing. And I can tell you that recently, four laboratories that you know, have been operating in the data sharing mode um, just compared all of their interpretations across like 55,000 variants shared across the ACMG 59 uh, most actionable genes in the genome. And we had a discordance under 1%, which is a great achievement compared to where we were many years ago. And as we dive into that small 1%, we are quickly resolving those differences, again, based on sharing the underlying evidence and other factors and have yet to find a variant that we disagree on. So, so, th that's, so well, that's the world great. has come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> that's great and very exciting. But also, you're saying it's in the genes we're more familiar with. In, in that, the... that is true. Um, so some of those genes are well studied, but I would say that there's still variation even in those 59 genes that um, are not seen across all four labs. In fact, only 11,000 of the 50,000 had been seen by more than one lab. So it just gives you a sense of just still how rare variation is even in these most commonly uh, tested and studied genes. One of the most overwhelming parts of genetics, I think, for me, when you step back and look at it, is how far we have to go in the things we're most familiar with. You know? Yeah. When you talk about, 
you know, in a genotype, phenotype. I'm like, we're still wrestling with cystic fibrosis, you know, still right. wrestling with the things that are most familiar, let alone. So, so um, I went to a, at a meet, I went to a, a talk at a meeting, probably this is a few years ago now, um, and the genetic counselor was presenting about looking at variants that came back from the lab and not taking the lab's call at face value and doing their own research into, I think this was in cardiology, uh, into each patient. And she was very much advocating, look, this is what you need to do. You need to, to assess each variant for yourself. Um, and she's a researcher and had the benefit of, first of all, a lot of resources and also a lot of time for every patient to do this sort of project. And there was some grumbling from the clinical counselors in the audience because in clinical life, you don't have hours and hours to spend doing, making a research project yep. of every lab result you get back. So it, do you have any thoughts on that? Like when now in 2020, when is it appropriate for a counselor to not take a lab call simply at face value, if ever? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, I think one of the challenges is that with the commercialization of genetic testing and the fact that it, you can still launch a lab without a lot of regulatory oversight. So these tests are still under the rubric of what we call LDTs or laboratory developed tests. Uh, and, and there's now it's not just about the U.S., there's labs all around the world. And unfortunately, the cost of genetic testing remains a barrier and so laboratories that offer testing for the cheapest prices um, are often where the hospitals want and patients want to send testing because of the cost barrier. The challenge is some of the cheapest testing labs aren't always the highest quality. So there's this trade-off um, in really you know, understanding the quality of the labs. And I can tell you that there are some of the biggest uh, laboratories out there are incredibly high quality. Um, and after you work with a laboratory for a while and you get to know the thoroughness with which they interpret variants, you can build up, you know, a confidence and a trust in, in certain laboratories and there's plenty good ones out there. However, there are other laboratories that, you know, have come into the game sometimes more recently um, and haven't really built up the experience and the approach for how to do this well. Uh, and some of those lab reports, I haven't seen some of them myself, aren't up to par. So, you know, as a clinical individual, a genetic counselor, a physician who's getting these reports back, you know, you really have to know the lab. And if you don't know the lab and you don't trust the lab uh, explicitly, then you have to do legwork yourself until you can develop that trust in their quality. Um, and, and that's just a reality of, of the moving markets that happen in genetic testing. Yeah, I, I've uh, often said that the most um, under-discussed uh, technology that has changed genetics is really UPS, FedEx. Um, right. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's what, from a regulatory point of view, changed everything. Um, so just to explain myself in case it's not clear, it used to be that laboratory-developed tests meant that they were tests done at the local level in your sort of like, you know, hospital lab, and so they weren't a big deal, whereas big laboratories uh, tests were done as test kits and so on. 
and now everything's sent out. So essentially, almost all genetic testing is now laboratory-developed tests, even if it's done by the biggest labs. And um, th it is very unregulated, uh, and I wouldn't say there's a lot of appetite for regulating it either. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I think um, I think overregulation can stifle um, certain fields where technology and approaches are changing rapidly, and that's certainly true of genetics. Um, and I think the major players in this field have, you know, are high quality, and and actually, ClinGen has stepped in in this in this area of variant interpretation, and we've developed. Uh, what I call the ClinGen lab list. Uh, and this is a, la a list of the laboratories that adhere to a minimum standard of data sharing to inform quality assurance of variant interpretation. And so we have a list of um, about 15 to 20 laboratories that have met that criteria. And, you know, I, I think if for providers, patients um, that are using that list as a source of which genetic labs to order from, I think you can feel fairly confident in the quality of the work that's happening. I think as you approach laboratories not on that list, I think, you know, all bets are off depending on, you know, what lab it is and, and why they aren't sharing and things like that. Yeah, that's great. I, I've, I've often thought that many of the problems we have where we talk about do we regulate or not regulate might be better served by a system of not trying to weed out every wrong test or every DTC effort that isn't really clinically valuable, but instead to give people a resource to understand which ones to trust, like a seal of approval yeah. sort of process, because that's a lot less invasive as a process, um, but still gives that's people right. a place to turn. So yeah, I'm like totally touting this. That's fantastic. We're running low on time, but I just want to get to one other thing because um, I sort of see your, insofar as I see your career, I'm not just summer, but I feel like you've you've been involved with inventing, in, not inventing, but the birth of these tools that are um, very fundamental to our practice now. And another one is Matchmaker. And so maybe you want to explain a little bit how that came about? Sure. Um, so another you know, in addition to interpreting variants in genes that we already know are involved in disease, like the cystic fibrosis gene and so on, um, what's still constantly happening today is that we are searching for new gene disease relationships, patients who are, you know, in a diagnostic odyssey trying to figure out the cause of their disease, and we find new candidates in those individuals all of the time. But there's lots of rare disease researchers that are sequencing the genomes of these patients undiagnosed um, and discovering candidates. And this might be a single de novo variant in a patient with a rare disease. But that single de novo variant isn't enough to implicate that new gene in that disease without some other patients who have similar disease or the same phenotype, clinical features, and also have a mutation in the same gene. And by bringing those patients together, we can start to build the evidence to actually implicate that gene in disease. And when we do that, we can then make diagnoses in patients routinely regarding that disease and that gene. But the problem was 
we were, you know, all in our isolated research laboratories finding these candidates, but not being able to get enough patients to write the paper and publish and implicate the gene. Uh, and so we decided that we would create what we call a federated network. And the re what that word means is that everybody has their own database that sits in their own lab in their own country. And in fact, uh, there are some countries that don't allow patient data to leave their country walls. And so we had to be creative about how we share data. And so we set up this network called the Matchmaker Exchange, where we developed a common API or application programming interface. This is a common software engineering term for how different systems on the internet interact with each other. And we used that concept of an API for how all of these databases were, would communicate with each other. And it's kind of like GoFish, where I might put a candidate in my database and say, gee, I think gene XYZ is a candidate for my patient with this disease, and I submit it. And then it queries all of the other databases and says, does anybody have a patient with mutations in this gene XYZ? Uh, and if there is a match, it sends me back an email to say, you have a match. It also sends the matching person an email that says their case matched with me. So we both get emails and CC to each other, and then that allows us to discuss our cases and see if they're really a clinical match, they, that these patients have the same disease. And if they do, it, it unites us, and we start to build evidence. And we've been entering genes, many thousands of researchers have in these databases, and we've now made hundreds of matches and published lots of papers from this exercise of matching patients, and this has been tr enormously helpful to the, to the field of rare disease research to be able to make these matches, bring evidence together, and get these genes out in the, the public domain. Does it match the families too? Because I know like, uh, it's incredibly helpful for people who, who have individuals in their family with a rare condition to be able to make contact with somebody else. Uh, does it ultimately yes, some of the as well? That's right. And so some of the uh, matchmaker nodes, as we call them, are actually places where patients and families can directly register and partake in matching. Uh, so the MyGene2 site run by University of Washington allows patients to register in there. Same with GeneMatcher run by the Hopkins site. And then ClinGen has its own patient registry called Genome Connect. And we also allow uh, families to connect with each other either for novel genes or um, also on known gene diagnoses. Um, that's fantastic. I, I remember a, a few years ago there was a wonderful, wonderful story in the New Yorker by Seth Nukin about um, Matt Mites' son, child with a rare disease, yes. and just this situation where they said, "Well, look, we found something that looks very uh, significant, but we really don't know because we've never seen it before the genetic change." And because he was a professor of computer sciences, he was able to manipulate sort of social media sources in this amazing way to find other patients around the world. And it was a great article. It's totally worth going back and reading if anyone hasn't seen it. It's N of One, I think it was called. And um, yeah. And I remember at the time having conversations with people or said like, but how does this happen for ordinary people? How does this happen for people who don't happen to be computer science professors and have all these resources at their fingertips? And you did that. Look at that. I was just 
bullshitting That's with right. people about <laughs> it and you actually did something about it. So uh, good for you. Um, <laughs> that's really wonderful. Yes, no, that's terrific. And really, you know, it, and it's, I mean, one thing that is important to keep in mind is uh, we used to not return results to patients unless we were absolutely sure about it. And I think uh, Matt Might's experience and his leadership in identifying uh, the evidence that really implicated uh, the gene in his son's disease is really an example of why we do need to give results back to families even before we're certain about their meaning because there's no better advocate for for a child or an individual than the person most affected by that condition. Uh, And you can't really underestimate the amount of effort that these families will go to to help bring a diagnosis to their child and, and, and give them the best that they can offer. So I, we, we now in our Rare Genomes Project, we routinely return results, not all of which are completely understood, and some are just sitting in matchmaker exchange waiting for that next hit, but we give them to the families because we want them to be able to take part in that endeavor to identify the cause of the disease. Well, certainly, return results a whole other topic. If we were just starting yeah. this, I'd be like, oh, fantastic. Let's talk about return of results for half an hour. But I don't have time to do that now. So um, so I'm going to give you the last word on that and stop it there. And maybe someday, Heidi, you'll come back and we'll talk for half an hour about return of results from research and all the pluses and minuses involved with that. Yes, it's a whole other topic, which I'd be delighted to discuss at another time. Yeah. But, um Yes, we're out of time today. We are out of time today. And thank, thank you so much for taking time out of your, I'm going to give this away, coronavirus Raiden schedule to, uh, <laughs> to come and talk about something else here today. Um, this is a coronavirus-free zone for the moment. Thank you uh, for joining us. Please follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher. Go to the website, Beagle Landed, and subscribe. Um, and such a pleasure talking to you today, Heidi. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. It was my pleasure as well. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite.